And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving. This is show number 20, and excited to have on the program this morning uh, a good friend of mine, someone I've gotten to know over the years, uh, working alongside of him on the basketball courts as he was uh, broadcasting the radio, John Feinstein. John is a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, He writes for the Washington Post, um, writing a daily column. He's also a radio and TV personality. He certainly is a personality. So excited uh, today to have John on the radio. Uh, This is show number 20. Again, this is Education, Leadership, and Beyond. And we are on Country 107.7. WDLC, 106.9 WYNY, Wall Radio on the following FM stations, 941, 949, 1057, 1061, 1340 AM, and 101.5 HD. And now for the third week, we are on Pocono 96.7. So, Gavin, uh, I'm in the studio here with Gavin Burt. Uh, we have an author on today, Gavin. And uh, he's our, our first author we've had on. Are you a, are you a book reader? Is, are you do you, are you a big reader of books? Not as much as I'd like to be. And it's just I don't have enough time. If I do read books, uh, it's often either regarding um, um, crime stories or it might be paranormal books about ghosts, etc., or uh-huh. that sort of thing. We're in the season approaching Halloween. That might you know get some stuff uh, on that topic. Yes, and I've been reading books about paranormal or Bigfooters, things like that, for almost 30 years. Well, John Feinstein's written over 30 books. I don't think he has any paranormals, but we're going to talk about a few of them today. And maybe after listening, uh, you'll read some of his his big hits. Um, But let's get started with today's concept before we bring John on. And uh, it's really about how this writing, how my book came to be, uh, being that I have an author on. I have one book. John has over 30. Um, but some of the concepts from my friend Dr. Gilbert and his success hotline, I've talked about Dr. Gilbert before. I've had him on the show. And again, his hotline number is 973-743-4690. And a few weeks ago on the hotline, Dr talked about the power of a single idea or experience that something can happen in your life and and trigger something and that's exactly what happened with with writing this book and getting me started writing this book I uh, I went to dr. Gilbert's class at Montclair State University uh, to speak on leadership to speak about being a principal and a basketball referee and uh, I left there with ten books and Dr. Gilbert said, Andrew, where, where is your book? And I said, Doc, I don't, I don't have a book. How, how can I write a book? I got three little kids. I got uh, a principal job. I'm a referee. I can't, I can't write a book. He said, yes, you can. I said, well, how, how the heck am I going to do that, Doc? I, my plate is full. He said, Andrew, you are an expert in your field. And if you just started writing down everything you know about being a principal, just start a list. You'll come up with the book. And that idea, that moment stuck in my head. And I said, you know what? Maybe he's right. And I did that. And I had about 75 things in one day. I just kept a pad with me. And every time something came up of something I do or something I think about uh, in my job as principal, I wrote it down. And 
boom, a year later, I had my first book. And it was amazing, and it's opened a lot of doors for me. It's opened a lot of um, ideas for me. It's got this radio show going, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I spoke to John Feinstein over the summer about it, uh, and that's when I did ask him to come on the show as well. So um, I wanted to also share... You know, that story got me going in terms of writing this book, and I jotted down some thoughts in in preparing for today's show. You know, what is it that you want to get going in your life? What is it that you want to start? Is there something that maybe you're waiting for New Year's Day to get started? We always hear about these uh, New Year's resolutions. Well, my challenge to you is if that something is, is creeping there, if it's sitting there and you've been thinking about it, whether it's losing weight, whether it's writing a book, whether it's exercising, whether it's painting your house, whatever it is that is kind of just sitting there and you've been thinking about it and you want to take that trip, um, I jotted down some things that might help you get started. So if you are home Saturday morning, Sunday morning, you got your coffee there, Jot, jot these down. And the first one is three words. Start right now. You've been putting it off. You've been sitting on it. I guess I had this book idea in, in, in the back of my mind, but I, I didn't think I could do it until the doc said, hey, just start writing down the, the things that you know about being a principal. And I did it. So start right now. And again, is it writing? Is it running? Is it baking? Is it a project? Is it a new job? Start right now. It's the start that stops most people. So if you start right now, at least you've started it. Number two, open your mind to ideas. When I got thinking about uh, this book and, and getting started with it, I really was thinking about it quite often. And all ideas and, and guests for the radio show were coming up. I was getting more and more ideas for the show. Um, and uh, in reading Teach Like a Pirate, there's a section in there called Open Your R-A-S. Not a different uh, thing that ends in A-S, but Open Your R-A-S, your reticular activating system. And that is a part of your brain that is the gatekeeper of the information that gets to your brain. It's like a filter or like a bouncer at a nightclub. And when you open that, when you commit to opening your RAS, the ideas are going to flow. And you keep a pad with you, write them down. You will continue to get more and more ideas and more things coming to you. Number three, there is no such thing as difficult. It's only time consuming. Now, certainly there are difficult things in our lives. Losing a loved one, sickness, uh, you know, things like that. Losing your vision. My dad lost his vision. It was a terrible uh, thing he went through. So those are certainly difficult. But saying it's too difficult to write a book, it's not. It's only time consuming. But if you commit to making the time and putting the time in, you can make it happen. Inch by inch, it's a cinch. You've heard that before, and it, there's some truth to it. One of the things that I did was just commit each day to make sure I can have some time to write. I know big time authors like John Feinstein that we're going to talk to in the next segment. I'm sure he dedicates a lot more than an hour, you know, but uh, we're going to talk to him about his tricks uh, and what he does uh, to, to get writing. But it's time consuming. It's not difficult. 
Number four, again, these are tips to get you started with that project, with that thing that might be you have waiting. Don't wait for New Year's Day to get started. Do it now. Go to stimulating events. Go to different type of activities, things that might enrich your experiences. If you just keep doing the same thing and going around to the same routine and hanging around with the same people, you're not going to get any fresh ideas. If you continue to do the same things, you're going to get the same results. So go to different things. I went to Dr. Gilbert's class. I didn't really know Dr. Gilbert. Uh, I was looking forward to meeting him, and boom, I came out of there with those 10 books, and I got the idea to write a book. If I didn't go to the class, that wouldn't have happened. Number five, get your Ph.D., Andrew, are you really asking me to get my doctorate? No. I'm asking you to be positive, hungry, and determined. Your PhD. Think about that. If you are determined, if that is a goal of yours, that you're going to get this project done, that you're going to lose weight, that you're going to exercise, whatever it is, you'll make it happen. Your PhD. Lastly, number six, you have to do the activity. If it's writing, you have to do it. If it's exercising, you have to do it. Make time in your schedule and do the activity. Running, maybe you need to go to a sleep clinic because you want to sleep more. Then do it. And you have to make the time to sleep. you got to set that bedtime, whatever it is that's happening. So those are some tips to get you started. Uh, and I will go back over them uh, with whatever it is that you want to get started with. For me, it was writing. And I'm thrilled to have on John Feinstein coming up here in the next segment. Uh, he is a, a, an author of over 30 books. He's on the uh, the bestseller list, and he's written a number of bestsellers. So we are going to be right back with Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving with John Feinstein, bestselling author. We will be right back, everybody. And welcome back, everyone, to Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving. This is Andrew Murata, and this is show number 20, and I am excited to welcome in my friend, author, writer, columnist, radio personality, TV uh, uh, announcer, John Feinstein. John, welcome to the show. Andrew, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you, even when you're not wearing stripes. (laughs) You had a lot of titles in there, John. You're doing a lot of different things and, uh, uh, you know, excited to have you on. I would say you're my first celebrity on the show. <laughs> and my father-in-law might argue against that, but uh, I really do appreciate you making some time to come on the show, John. Glad to do it. John, uh, I'll start with your book writing. You've written over 30 books. I opened the show. I talked about my first one. You know, what what makes a good writer, and how the heck have you written 30 books? Well, it's actually 38, to be honest, as of Tuesday when my my new book comes out on last year's Ryder Cup, uh, the first major. But to your point, um, I I, I don't know exactly what makes a good writer because I think it's sort of like saying what makes a good ref. I mean, often uh, there are different characteristics that go into a successful writer. I think my strength, honestly, has been my reporting ability. I, uh, people, I think, are comfortable talking to me. They trust me. I do work hard at what I do. I like what I do. I'm lucky that way. Uh, and when I'm writing a book, um, I can tell if I've done my job as a reporter. Because if I'm 
in a particular segment of a book and I'm check, checking the, the word count every 15 minutes, then I haven't done my job. But if two hours go by and I look up and I've written 2,000 words, then I know I've done my job. So for me, the most important aspect is to do my job as a reporter so that I, I have stories to tell. I, that's what I think of myself as, a storyteller. I, I do a lot of public speaking, and people seem to think I'm pretty good at it, and then I think that's just because I've, I've had the chance to know so many people, and I can tell a good story. I ha- inherited that from my dad. My dad was a great storyteller. Um, so it's it's for me it's the reporting it's it's uh working hard and being thorough and it's loving what i do and and you ask how i could write so much i think the answer is because i generally speaking love what i do and where did that love start john did you know we talked off off air you went to duke uh back in the day and uh, you know you didn't necessarily love uh or having a hard time finding what you loved there and then you found writing and, and reporting. How, yeah, where, tell me well, about that. I, you know, I went to I went to college as a swimmer. Um, I was a reasonably good swimmer growing up in New York City, and got recruited by a bunch of schools as a swimmer, um, and went to Duke intending to be that, and broke an ankle, uh, fell down a flight of steps, sober, embarrassingly enough, <laughs> and so I couldn't swim. And a buddy of mine in the dorm told me that the student newspaper was a good place to meet girls. And he was right. And I liked, I liked it right away, beyond the girls, because I write like I talk. So writing has always come easily to me. I, I can write very fast. I was fast back then. I'm still fast today, knock wood. So it came easily to me, and it was also a way... Uh, even though I didn't just do sports when I was in college, and, and I was actually a night police reporter and a political reporter for a while at the Washington Post, but sports was always my my great passion, and writing about sports in college and, and now uh, has been my way of staying connected to, to sports and having a chance to go places and do things and meet people that I never would have gotten to meet if I didn't end up doing what I was doing. So I was hooked on on being a reporter um, almost right away. Uh, I, I knew by my sophomore year that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I was talking about when we were off the air, that class was just something I really did because I had to. Uh, I, I love some of my history classes. I've always been fascinated by history, and Duke had great history professors, but uh, most of what I did in a learning sense at Duke was, was at the student newspaper. And you, you tell that story in the Legends Club. I'm currently listening to that. And, and you recorded your own audio book uh, uh, yes. with that. I enjoy listening to you. But you tell that story. I think you were in the locker room with Coach Smith uh, after right. the Carolina game, correct? And he, and right. He- it was my junior year. And uh, Duke. younger people will find this hard to believe. Duke was awful in basketball. Um, my four years in school, Duke finished either last or tied for last in the ACC. Uh, of course, the year after I graduated, they played Kentucky in the national championship game. <laughs> so they were getting better my junior and senior years. And uh, one of the play, one of my classmates, a guy who's still a good friend of mine, was Tate Armstrong, who played on, on Dean Smith's 76 Olympic team and played in the NBA for five years before he broke his wrist and was never quite the same. But uh, I was trying to write a column about the fact that even though Duke was tied for last, 
Tate Armstrong should be given consideration for player of the year in the ACC because he was, he was a one-man gang. He averaged 24 a game with no clock and no three-point shot back then. And so in those days, things were far less formal than they are now. There were no interview rooms, and uh, coaches would you know, hang around in the locker room um, when the media was in, in there after games. And Dean was standing over in the corner of the locker room, and he was talking to a couple of writers. And I walked over and, and introduced myself. And he looked at me, and he said, I know who you are. I read the column you wrote last month saying that Bill fought Bill, Bill Foster, who was Duke's coach at the time, should follow our model to build a program at Duke. And he said, I thought you were very fair to us, especially for someone from Duke, which I didn't know it then, but that became a recurring theme with Dean and I for 35 years. Dean would always say, you've always been fair to us, dot, 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 for someone from Duke. And I would say, Dean, why can't you just say I've been fair to you, period? And we, we, we joked about it a lot. But back then... When Dean Smith said he had read something I'd written, I almost fainted. I mean, I was writing for the, the Chronicle, the student newspaper at Duke. Dean Smith's reading the student newspaper at Duke. Well, I later found out that, again, showing Dean's attention to detail, one of the things he did was the Carolina basketball office had a subscription to every major paper in the country, every paper that covered the ACC, and all the student newspapers in the ACC. And one of his assistants... At one point, it was actually Roy Williams, would cut out every clip that was relevant to Carolina in some way, and Dean would read him on airplanes. So he had, he had read this, this column that I'd written, and uh, I was blown away that he'd read it and very flattered that he said something nice about it, and I'd like to say that was the start of a beautiful friendship. Well, you just told two stories about the power of a single idea or a single experience, which is what we opened the show with. Uh, and those are those are great stories, and it's good you did a good job on that article uh, about Carolina. <laughs> that it might have turned out differently. Yeah, John, you never know, do you? When you when you write something, obviously, you know, I want my radio program to be good. I want my book to be good. You want your stuff to be good, but do you know, like, man, this is going to be this is going to be really good. How do you know when you got something? Well, it, 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 it goes back to, to two things. One that I already mentioned. If something, if I write something and it seems to fly by, that I look up and I say, how could I have written that much already? Then I, I usually know I've, I'm telling a good story, whether it's a, a part of a book or a newspaper column or a magazine piece. I covered the Navy Air Force football game a couple of weeks ago, and it was one of the best games I've ever seen. Air Force was down three touchdowns. They rallied to take the lead with a minute and 53 to go. Navy came back, scored the winning touchdown with 15 seconds left. It was just a great game, a great day. And I, I, when I got back up to the press box, I was in the Navy locker room after the game. Very emotional scene there because uh, Navy's uh, offensive coordinator, Ivan Jasper's son, uh, needs a heart transplant. And he'd been in the hospital for two months and had just come out of the, the uh, hospital. And I knew Ken Niamatololo was going to give him the game ball if they won, which he did. So it was a great scene. And I got up and I, upstairs, I looked at my watch. It was 7.15. And I said, oh, geez, I've got an hour to write this. I better get going. Well, I started writing. And about half an hour later, I did a, a quick word count. And I'd already written 1,200 words because the column is the old saying is a column writes itself. Yeah, And the only hard part was figuring out what to leave out, which is what you want. You'd rather have that than, oh, my God, how can I pad it? 
So I, I can usually tell. I, I will also say if I have one strength, it's that I know a good story. I, I know what's a good story. I'm Usually when I think, mm, that's a good story, I'm right. Uh, and, you know, the best example might be my first book, Season on the Brink, when my agent, Esther Newberg, who's been my agent for 31 years now, when I first called her to say that I could get total access to Bob Knight for a season, because uh, I'd already talked to Bob about it, she said, oh, don't waste your time. Nobody cares about college basketball. And I said, boy, I really think people are interested in Bob Knight. And long story short, eventually I wrote a proposal. She sold it to a publisher. Five publishers rejected the idea, by the way. Wow. And turned out I was right. My instincts were right. And you went with your instincts and you had enough confidence and chutzpah, as they say, to, uh, to get that done. I had a cat named Hutzpah once. <laughs> John, we talked a little bit. You know, you have an office, uh, a home office that you write out of. How do you balance writing for the, the Washington Post and writing your books? Do you, do you use the clock and say, well, I'm going to get this uh, article done and then I'm going to go back to the book? How do you balance that? Well, no, what I usually do is on days when I'm writing for the Post or days when I'm writing my, my – I write a weekly column for CBSSportsRadio.com or if I'm finishing a magazine piece, I try to carve out a schedule so that on those particular days I will start with the non-book stuff. And I might even give myself a day off from, from, from the book. Uh, which I don't do that very often. Uh, usually once I start a book – um, I'm usually on a tight deadline, so I will write every day. But I might take a day off here to go do something with with one of my kids or because I'm covering a game or because I have to write something for the Post or CBS or Golf Digest. Um, but I try to plan ahead. I, I have a plan in my head of how how much I'm going to get through each day. I don't sit down and say, okay, I must write 2,000 words today. I do say I'm going to try to write this section of the book, and it could be 1,500 words, it could be 3,000 words, it could be 1,000 words. But I want to try to get through this section. And once you start into a particular part of a book, it's really not that hard to get through to the end of that part of the book because you, you start to, to you know start writing and, and it kind of flows. One of the things I was very lucky, uh, before, just before I wrote Season on the Brink, I read a biography of Hemingway. And in the biography, it said that Hemingway never stopped writing on a given day at the end of a chapter or at the end of a section of the book. He tried to stop writing mid-thought. And the reason he did that was so that it would be easier to start the next day. Because when you're starting from a point where you already know where you're going, it's easier to get started writing that way. So I've always done that. Wow. I, there are times when I'll stop in mid-sentence. That is amazing. See, I would have never, never thought that. But that's me a, neither, unless I'd read it in the book by Hemingway about wow. Hemingway. That's fantastic, John. I feel like you and I could talk books all day. We do have to take a quick commercial break, uh, but we are going to be right back here on Education, Leadership, and Beyond: Surviving and Thriving with my guest John Feinstein. We'll be right back, everybody. And and welcome back to Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving. We are on WDLC, WYNY, Wall Radio, and Pocono 96.7. My name is Andrew Murata. This is show number 20. 
And uh, our guest, John Feinstein, has uh, gotten in with the tradition here on Education, Leadership, and Beyond uh, with the sing-along songs. John, you're a, a Billy Joel guy, huh? Absolutely. Love Billy Joel. Long Island boy. And he tells a great story, just like you talked about earlier. John, you do a lot of a lot of things. I got a lot of things going on in my life, but you do a lot. You're on the radio, you're on TV, you write for the paper, you write for magazines, and you've written a tremendous amount of books. If you could only pick one, you know, which one is your favorite and, and why? Oh, it, writing. That, that you know, I, the writing is what I do. I love writing the books because they give me a chance to really go in depth uh, on a subject, uh, regardless of what it is. To when I again, not to name drop, but when I went to do season on the brink, Bob Woodward had been my editor when I was on the Metro staff at the Post when I covered cops and then later covered uh, politics. And I had lunch with Bob, and he said, "Your goal when you when." the next six months that you're going to be with Bob Knight is to know more about him than anybody on earth has ever known. That's what you want to do. You want to be able to write as if you're inside his head. And that, that's been my approach to every book I've done. Now, I never succeed. I, I doubt if I've ever been the expert on the PGA Tour or the expert on tennis or the expert on pitching uh, or, on, or on Bob Knight. But if your goal is to know everything, then if you can come somewhere close to that, you've got a chance to write a good book. So I've always loved going in depth and really getting to know subjects and people uh, and what makes them tick and who they are and why they became who they are. But I still also love writing for the Post. I, I love the adrenaline uh, of a daily deadline. I, I love the feeling, like I said to you, after a great game like that Air Force-Navy game, uh, I still go to the Army-Navy game every year because it's my favorite event. Um, I love that adrenaline rush that you get when you're writing on deadlines. So those are really the two things I enjoy the most. I've, I've always said that TV and radio have sort of been necessary evils in my life. Uh, you can make money doing them. Uh, I'm divorced, as you know. So uh, my my wife, my current wife, Christine, points out to me often when I say I'm sick and tired of doing this TV stuff or doing because TV to me, I mean, I like doing games, the games you, you see me at where I'm, I'm the, the color guy. I like doing that. That's fun. But, you know, sitting on a set, you know, and talking in 30 second sound bites or whatever, I, I, that's always been just something I've done, frankly, for the money. Because my, as I said, my wife says to me, John, before you were diverse, divorced, excuse me, you had blank you money. Now you have, sir, what time do you need me there money? <laughs> so so I, I, I do the TV and the radio. I think I'm pretty good at them. But what I really love doing is writing. That's always been my pa- My two passions have been sports and writing. And I've been lucky that I've been able to make a decent living doing those two things. Well, and you, you talked about finding what it is that you love. And that's one of the secrets of life. And uh, that is great that you were able to, to find that. John, one of the themes that you write about, from what I see, is the underdog. You, mm-hmm. you, you and I see each other at a lot of Ivy League games. You wrote the book about the Patriot League, uh, the last amateurs. You wrote right. about the minor league baseball. You wrote the, the, the story about the teams that haven't made the NCAA tournament. You know, right. what, what is it about the underdog that intrigues you? I, I always think the struggle is much more interesting than uh, 
people for whom it's easy. Um, when I did my first golf book, A Good Walk Spoiled, it, it, it fascinated me that the golfers that readers latched onto were guys like Paul Goidos and Jeff Cook and Brian Henninger and Mike Donald, uh, guys who were just out of Q school uh, or in Mike Donald's case had had to go back to Q school, as opposed to the stars back then, Greg Norman, Nick Faldo, Nick Price, all good guys. But their stories, I think people have trouble um, getting all wound up about a multimillionaire missing a four-foot putt and thus only making $500,000 for the week as opposed to a million dollars for the week. I think when people are reading about guys who, in many cases, will never play professionally um, or have struggled professionally and never become stars, my favorite book of all the ones I've written is a book called The Civil War which was about the Army-Navy football rivalry. And I knew as I was researching that book that none, none of those, the, these kids were going to play pro ball. I mean, every once in a while, Army or Navy will get a player to the NFL. You, Alejandro Villanueva from the Steelers is an Army grad, uh, as people know. Roger Staubach, of course, was a Hall of Famer, but that was 50 years ago. Um, but 99.9% of the guys who play football at Army or Navy, the only uniforms they're ever going to wear are Army, Navy, or Marines. But they play the game because they love the game, and they're at least as passionate about it as the stars at Ohio State, Notre Dame, Michigan, you know, Alabama. You pick the school because they know their careers are over when college when they when they play their last college game. And um, the year I did the book, 1995, I was in both locker rooms. I, I, I always like to say. I think I'm the only person who wasn't a president of the United States who's been in both the Army and Navy locker rooms during an Army-Navy game. And the passion and the feeling in those two locker rooms was like nothing else I've ever felt at a, at a, at a football game or after a football game or during a football game. And um, so I, I just enjoy telling those stories. Uh, and the other thing is when people aren't stars, when they're not controlled by an agent or a sports information director or a PR guy, they they tend to be much more open about themselves than the stars who have been trained about how to not say anything to the media. What I call the the uh, <clears throat> excuse me the Crash Davis speech from uh, <clears throat> excuse me from um, Bull Durham, Bull Durham yeah. where he says, you know, the answer to your question is yeah, I always want to give 110 percent. I just thank God for my teammates. Blah yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah. You get more real answers from guys who aren't haven't been trained. Well, that is uh, is, is great uh, insight, John. You know, when I when I first became a principal, when I first started uh, refereeing, you know, I didn't want to make a mistake, you know, and I was hesitant. Um, and and after a while, I learned to kind of say, you know what, uh, effort. You, you know, you got to do the best you can, and if you make an error, it is what it is. Right. Do you like when you're writing about a controversial topic? If something is is a hot topic button, you mentioned in the Army Navy game a couple years ago, the coach from Army, uh, you know, we're up that way. Um, they said a prayer or, or something about prayer, and they, uh, you know, there was yeah, it wasn't it wasn't an Army Navy game, but it was an Army an Army game. Yes, Co correct. Yeah, yeah. So, but when you're writing about something controversial, like before you hit send or before you hit enter, like I'm going to submit this, like uh, is there is there a little Person sitting on your shoulder saying, "John, you might not want to write that." Where you know, do you have? I always, that? you know, when I finish writing something, Andrew, no matter what it is, I I read I read it back to myself, partly for simple edits, uh, but also to make sure that I've been fair. 
um, because one of the great myths about journalism is that any of us are objective. We're, none of us are objective. We all have biases in life. And what we have to do when we're writing is realize we have those biases and try to be fair uh, to, to both sides of an issue or both teams in a game, whatever it might be. Um, but uh, when, I, when I'm expressing an opinion, I usually don't worry about people reacting negatively because no matter what opinion you express, someone's going to react negatively and someone's going to, and someone's going to react positively. So the, the key element for me is have I been fair and then do I have my facts right? Because one thing you don't want to do is express an opinion, being critical of someone, and do it based on facts that aren't correct. And you have to be very careful about that. Um, but in terms of people being critical of me because they disagree with an opinion I might express, th that just comes with the territory. John, you have uh, uh, three children. Your son Danny is 23. Uh, your daughter Bridget is 19. And uh, you have a little one, uh, Jane, uh, seven. You've talked about a lot of your books. You spent time in the minor leagues. You spent time with Bob Knight, you know. But you've you've now gotten into writing a, a children's series and some children's mm -hmm. books. How, how how did that come from? Where did that come from? And what well, made you kind of change your your niche there? Yeah, it, actually, it, it it came as a direct result of something my wife said to me when we weren't married. There's again, there's this single idea. You're jumping all over my opening theme. I love it. There you go. Um, <laughs> But uh, Chris was working, and she was my agent's assistant. That's how I met her okay. initially. Okay. And um, Danny and I, Danny was about seven or eight, uh, were reading Carl Hyacinth's kid's book, Hoot. And Carl and I had the same agent, Esther Newberg, and I called Chris to get Carl Hyacinth's email because I wanted to drop him a note and tell him how much we enjoyed the book. And while she was digging out the email, she said to me, have you ever thought about writing a kid's book? You talk about your children all the time. I only had two then. Um, and there's not that much in the sports mystery genre for kids who are, Danny, I think, was eight or nine at the time, and Bridget was five or six. And she said, there's not that much in that, that genre for kids 10, 11, and up. And I've always thought the best fiction is fiction that, that sounds real. Where, where the writer clearly knows the subject that he's writing about. So I came up with this idea to set a book at the Final Four, since I'd been to every one since 1978 at that point, because wow. um, it's something I know. And uh, the book ended up uh, being a bestseller and winning the Edgar Allan Poe Award for mystery writing oh uh, in the young adult category. And so I've kept doing them, and they've been tremendous fun. And I've gone all over the map in terms of, of subjects. My most recent one, which just came out six weeks ago, is called Backfield Boys. And it's about two kids, uh, an African-American kid and a white kid, who go to a fictional all-jock prep school in right outside Charlottesville, Virginia. And it turns out the coach is an old-fashioned racist who won't play a black kid at quarterback. And then it, they fi come to find out, I'm not making this up, I made it up, but I'm not making this up, that the head of the school was a former KKK member. Oh, my God. Now, obviously, when I wrote it, I had no idea what would happen in Charlottesville this summer. Yeah. But it certainly made the book more timely and everything that's going on uh, with the NFL players and the president now. Um, certainly, uh, people say, why would you pick that uh, as, as a, as a storyline? And the answer is because I, I, I believed for many years and still believe that race is the elephant in the room in our country. And I think what's going on right now is, is proof of that.
Absolutely. You know, my children, uh, uh, my oldest have read the Grisham's uh, kids' books, and uh, I've seen Lupica's. But now, since you've been on Education, Leadership, and Beyond, we are going to get started with the Feinstein children books. Uh, that's fantastic, John. John, I got well, a, there couple, you go. a couple. That, that's one good reason to be on the show then, right, Andrew? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I got a couple rapid-fire questions. We're coming up against a commercial break. These are, uh, as, just as they are called, rapid-fire. So the last book that you read. Oh, you, you want to do this now before commercial break? Oh, okay. yeah. We're, last you, book you, I you read said, uh, was you said uh, you Al like Franken, to, Giant of the Senate. You like to be up against the deadline. Well, we're up to, against the deadline. Go. Say it again. Last book you read. Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. Last movie you saw. Probably trolls at least ten times with my dog. <laughs> Great soundtrack. Your favorite sport to watch? Uh, pro- college basketball and baseball. Okay, great. I'm right there with you. Your favorite sport to write about? College basketball and golf. There you go. Best pro athlete in Washington D.C. history. Well, best pro athlete from Washington, D.C., I'd have to say Elgin Baylor, even though he was before my time, just knowing what a great player he was. Dave Bing, I would throw in, too. Best uh, athlete to perform here, i got to go with Wes Unseld. Uh, He was just unbelievable. All right. Best thing about Duke University? Mike Krzyzewski. The best trait of a referee? Patience. And we mentioned it a minute ago, being willing to admit a mistake. Mm-hmm. The thing that bothers you the most about referees? Referees who take it personally and, and, and continue an argument. Don't, don't, don't just tee the coach up and walk away, which is what you should do. The last thing you did recently that got your adrenaline going? Well, um, physically, it's always when I swim. That's, that's how I still work out. Uh, and I mentioned it before, the Army, Air, the Navy Air Force game a couple weeks ago. Fantastic. Where are you going to be in five years? I hope here. <laughs> in, in, I hope it's still, still on Earth. Um, but uh, I, I hope doing more writing uh, and, and less of the other peripheral things. Awesome. We are going to be right back, everyone, with author, columnist, radio, TV, and uh, uh, writing superstar John Feinstein here on Education, Leadership, and Beyond. And welcome back, everyone, to Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving. My name is Andrew Murata, and this is show number 20. And before we get back to our guest, John Feinstein, we're going to recap our opening segment, and it was the power of a single idea. Something in your life can happen and just change course. John told a couple stories where that happened multiple times in his life. I shared the story about how I got started with my first book. And I shared uh, six tips to get you started. You take that single idea and you can go with it. And the first one is start right now. Those three words, start right now. Number two is open your mind to ideas. Number three, there's no such thing as difficult. It's only time-consuming. Number four, go to stimulating events or or different activities uh, to to, have different experiences. John told the story about being in the locker room. Uh, Coach Dean Smith from Carolina comes up and speaks to him uh, because he read an article they had written, and he's in the locker room. Boom. That was a a great story. 
Have your PhD. Be positive, hungry, and determined. And lastly, write, uh, run, cook, lose weight. Whatever it is that you, you want to do, you have to do it. So that was the opening concept uh, for today's show, and I, I'd like to welcome back uh, John to the show. And John, it's been a, a great show. Uh, certainly, if you're a writer, uh, it is. It's been great to talk to an expert in the field. I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Glad to do it, John. You're you're a reporter. Uh, a quick question before we get to our write-in portion of the question: What are some questions I should have asked you? <laughs> I think you've done a pretty good job, actually. Um... You know, uh, you you covered you covered the waterfront on uh, reporting and my background and on sports and uh, you didn't ask any cliche questions. And that last question you asked me is always the most important question. That's my last question whenever I do an interview. Get out, really? Yeah. Huh? Well, I say, what did I miss? What what should I have asked you that I didn't? And yeah. it, usually. You get, ah, no, you did fine. But every once in a while, they'll say, I'll tell you the best example. Uh, I, this is a little embarrassing, but I, I, I remember it vividly. I was doing my first baseball book in 1992, which was called Play Ball. And I was interviewing Paul Molitor, who was playing in Milwaukee at the time. Uh, and, of course, is now the manager of the Minnesota Twins. Great guy. And I was completely unaware. Usually before I sit down to interview somebody, I try to you know, do my homework, know about the guy's background and what's going on in his life so I don't ask stupid questions but I didn't realize that he had had he had been in drug rehab early on in his career in the late 1970s I think it was and so I finished up and I said did I miss anything Paul is there anything I should ask you and he said well I'm a little surprised you didn't ask me about my 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 rehab and my drug problem and I, I said oh jeepers I guess I yeah okay and then he talked about it for 20 minutes so he really bailed me out, but thank goodness I asked that question. Yeah, wow, and I didn't know that about him either, and I remember him playing. Oh, he's a great player. Yeah. I mean, 3,400 hits. Incredible. John, uh, this is a portion of the show where uh, listeners to the show can write in. Uh, that email is andrew at com. You could also send it in on Twitter, at andrewmarada21, uh, or find me on my website, andrewmarada.com, and you could get in touch with us regarding the show. Uh, and this uh, question is for you, John. Someone writes in here, what advice would you give someone who wants to become a writer, and how should they get started? Well, the best way, of course, things have changed a lot, Andrew, since I was a kid coming up uh, where my goal was to be at the Washington Post. I, my family had moved here when I was in, uh, in high school, and I devoured the Post every day. Um, that was at the height of Watergate, and Woodward and Bernstein were, were stars, and I wanted to, to be them and never got to be them but got to work for Bob. Uh, but now, of course, there's the there's the internet and and people aspire to be on TV, I, um, so it's different. But the, the, to me, the basic is try don't don't specialize too soon. Don't say I'm going to be a sports writer. I'm going to be a political writer. I'm going to be a a, a music critic. Whatever, and you may ultimately decide that's what you want to do. But the more different things you learn how to write about the better off you'll be. Being a night police reporter was one of the most important experiences of my career because it gave me perspective on sports. It was never hard for me to go into a losing locker room after I'd had to knock on the door of a parent who just lost a child. 
wow. or after I'd been at the scene of a murder. And, and, and writing about politics taught me about you, being precise. You got, when you're writing about sports, you make a mistake, you just put a correction in the newspaper. When you're writing about politics, if you get something wrong, it can affect the outcome of an election. Uh, so it, that taught me precision. And it also, again, writing about politics, writing about uh, crime, writing about courts gives you a, a broader perspective on the world and, again, reminds you that when it all comes down to it, sports are still just games. So I would say make sure your experience is as broad as it can be, and then eventually you'll decide what your niche is. Well, you found your niche, uh, John. I, I've read a few of your books. I read The Punch, uh, The Last Amateurs. You know, you have a book coming out uh, on Tuesday, the first major. Um, I have a lot of reading to do, and uh, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show here. You did a great job. And, John, if someone wants to find you, if they want to contact you, they want to hire you as a speaker, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, uh, through, through my website, which is uh, jfeinsteinbooks.com, or you can contact me through Twitter, which is at jfeinsteinbooks. Um, but the, the website has all the information you need. You can link to, to the books if, if there's information there about hiring me as a speaker or whatever uh, you might want to find. That's usually the best way. When you come up for the uh, Army game up this way, uh, we'll have to get together. But I know I'll see you on the courts during the season uh, this year. Thrilled to have you on, John. Thank you so much. Look forward to it, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You got it. That was uh, John Feinstein, everyone. Thanks for tuning in uh, on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, whenever you're listening. We have our quote before we wrap up, and it's from Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt wrote many years ago, Talent is extremely common. What is rare is to endure the life of a writer. And that's a tribute to my friend uh, and guest today, John Feinstein. Next week's guest is middle school principal Gene Lane is next week's guest. So tune in. Uh, thanks for being part of the uh, show this morning. Have yourself a great weekend and go out and change the world for the better. We are signing off here on Education, Leadership and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving.